everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Gold podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today we are back with another episode of Summer School. I get emails all the time and messages and DMs and people stop me in the street. They don't really stop me in the street, but I get asked all the time for help in four different types of goals, side hustle, health, writing, and speaking. They're kind of the four big buckets people think about when they think about goals. So I started a series called Summer School to address each one of those in a special episode. So in week one, we addressed how you can charge more for your side hustle. If you've got a side hustle um, or thinking about doing freelance or becoming an entrepreneur, make sure you check out that episode. Or if you have a spouse, a friend, a boyfriend, a partner, whatever, who has a side hustle, they need to listen to that one because charging the right amount of money means you get to be an entrepreneur for a lot longer. Last week, which was episode two in this series, we discussed five ways you can get healthy. I think my favorite one of the five was when we talked about how you can create a mini challenge to stay motivated. It's so easy to put a challenge together, like a small little challenge that you work on, and they end up being a fuel that will really keep you in motion. So go give that episode a listen if you haven't yet. This week, we are going to talk about the five steps that I use to write New York Times bestselling books. If you want to write a book, you're going to love this episode. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode. Are you struggling to finish your goals? You're not alone. According to research studies, 92% of people who set New Year's resolutions don't complete them. People have write books. They leave business ideas in the first draft stage. They don't learn the new skill. They don't run the race. They don't change careers. And those post-December pounds stay firmly in place. But there's a second group, the 8%. They're the ones getting calls from publishers about their next book. They're the ones with calendars so full they have to turn down high-paying offers. They're the ones that are crushing every exercise goal they have. They're the finishers. What if you could have a step-by-step guide to get your biggest dream across the finish line? That's exactly what you'll find in my Finish Video course. No matter what goal you have, in this course, you'll learn how to master your motivation, keep the promises you make to yourself, and most importantly, how to actually finish your goals. And I promise you'll have a ton of fun along the way. Check out the course today at finishcourse.com. Thousands of people just like you have used it to write books, get in shape, pay off debt, declutter their houses, find new jobs, complete degrees, and just about any other goal you can imagine. That's finishcourse.com. All right, let's talk about the five steps I use to write New York Times bestselling books. This one is fresh on my mind because I just turned in a new book to my publisher. If you're watching this on um, the video podcast, I'm holding up a massive pile of papers because I just turned that in today. The day I'm recording this, I turned in a book. So this one is fresh on my mind. And I I tweeted about it. If you don't follow me on Twitter, I'm just at John Acuff, J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. And here's what I tweeted. The longer you avoid doing the work, the more intimidating the work gets. I got stuck between my sixth and seventh books. I waited too long and writing got scary. I felt like I forgot how to do it. Today, I turned in my ninth book because I didn't stop writing after the eighth. Hashtag do the work. I'm pretty sure The the Rock probably owns the the patent um, or the copyright on hashtag do the work, but it felt like the right hashtag to put. But it's true. I took a huge break between finish 
and my most recent book soundtracks. And it got really hard to get back into writing. I've talked to other writers about that and it seems pretty common. I think that's true of most things in life. I think it's really hard to run a second marathon if you put four years between marathon one and marathon two. I think there's real value, whatever your craft is, whatever your goal is in staying in motion. And so this last book, this one I turned in, was way easier to work on because I just stayed in motion. Um, at some point, I'll probably turn this process that I'm going to share today into a longer PDF or a resource. But for now, here's the down and dirty of how I write books. Step number one, find a question you're willing to spend two years answering or, or maybe even longer than that. I look for a question that I really can't stop thinking about because I know I'm going to re read about it, research it, write about it, talk about it for a long time, years and years and years and years. So I look for a question that just won't leave me alone. For instance, with this book I wrote called Do Over, I wondered why some people were great at handling job transition and, and some people weren't. For my book Finish, I wondered why some people started goals but just couldn't complete them. For my latest book, Soundtracks, I wondered if I could turn my overthinking from a super problem into a superpower. Could I learn how to do that? For all of those topics, I always have some skin in the game. The question is personally related to something I'm curious about. So for Do Over, I had just gone through a really big job transition and I thought, okay, what are the tools you need to actually transition well? Because everybody's going to have multiple jobs. And I had all these friends too that we're close to my age and they're all going through these big transitions. And so I was curious about how do you have a really, really good do-over? Because life is full of do-overs. There's a ton of people listening to this right now that had a do-over in the last two years. Like their job changed, their life changed, the pandemic changed everything. What does it look like to get better at handling transition? So I had my question for that book. For finish, I was a chronic starter. I was a chronic starter in that I would half read books, I'd half write books, I'd half do exercise programs, I'd quarter do notebooks, like I'd buy a new notebook, write like 10 pages in, and then I'd give up. And I thought, are finishers born? Like are people that are good at finishing, like like Mark Wahlberg came out of the womb and was like, boom, I'm getting up at 3 a.m., I'm doing burpees, like I'm going to do 17 movies, like Samuel L. Jackson was like, boom, like I finished projects. Or is that something you can actually learn? Like, is it a personality trait or is it something you can learn? Spoiler alert, you can 100% learn it. So I was curious about that question. With soundtracks, I'm an overthinker. I overthink everything. But I also saw a time in my life where changing my thoughts changed my actions and changed my results. So I got really curious about that kind of framework. Can great thoughts lead to great actions and great actions lead to great results. So that was the question that I started soundtracks with. Now, during this stage, step one of coming up with a question, I'll come up with dozens, maybe hundreds of questions and see which one is really bothering me in the best possible way. And usually what happens is that I have a ton of questions I'm thinking about, and then one will become like the king or queen question and other questions will just get attracted to it. Like it almost becomes like an umbrella question that uh, everything else can fit underneath it. Like it's the one and they all start to kind of morph together. That's step one. Step two that I use, that I think you should use to write New York Times bestselling books is collect ideas. After you find a question, start collecting as many ideas as you can. 
Um, go on a huge hunt. One of my favorite quotes about curiosity came from Dorothy Parker. I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before. Um, but Dorothy Parker, this writer from the 60s said, creativity is a curious mind and a disciplined eye. Curious mind, disciplined eye. What does she mean by that? She means you're so curious about all these topics, about something you read in a book, a song lyric, something a neighbor said, something your kid said, the way they used a specific word on a restaurant menu. Like you have this crazy curiosity and you collect all these ideas. You've got a, a wild mind, a wild mind. And then you have the discipline of your eye to see the connections. So it's a wild mind and a disciplined eye. And then with your eye, you go, this is related to this is related to this. Like this piece is related to this other piece is related to this other piece. And together they create something new that no one's ever thought about before. So that's what I do. At the beginning, I come up with a ton of ideas. Now, I personally use a notebook. I'm holding up a notebook if you're watching or if you're just listening right now. I'm holding up a, a bright uh, blue notebook. I like bright things because they make me feel encouraged. So I have a notebook and I'll just carry this around for six months. I'll throw every idea that I like even vaguely relates to the question into this notebook. Now, my goal at this stage is quantity, not quality. I'm going for quantity. No idea is too dumb to get thrown in here. Like I always think about that. There's no bouncer. I think a lot of us have bouncers that keep good ideas out of our heads, or we have bouncers that keep ideas stuck in our heads that say like, whoa, 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 you can't write that down. It's a dumb idea. Someone's already done it. I think you need to fire the bouncer. If you want to be more creative, regardless if you're going to write a book, you're going to give a speech, whatever. If you want to be more creative, you have to fire that bouncer that's like, no, nah, that idea does. That's a dumb idea. Like you got to fire that guy so fast. I'm just trying to get a lot of ideas. I try to have around 1600 ideas a year. Um, 1600. I, I write them out numerically. I'll do a whole episode someday on, on how I write down ideas, but they're in this notebook. I'll give you a few examples. I, I bookmarked a few examples of these are real things that I wrote down in my notebook that I don't know if they'll turn into anything but I know I've got to collect them if I want them to. Like, that's the thing. You don't know what idea will become the idea, but you know none of your ideas will unless you collect them. So idea number 660 this year, it says book. I write book in like all bold letters so I can find it easy. It kind of like marks it. I wrote book, signs you're a workaholic. Um, and these are signs from my own life. Number one, I got mad when my wife talked about us going on vacation. That's probably a pretty, it's pretty good sign, right? Like she was like, hey, let's do this 10 day vacation. I was like, I got so much to do. I can't fit that in. Like my first reaction was frustration. Like that's probably a sign you're a workaholic. Number two, I uh, scheduled a 2.30 meeting on Good Friday. My wife came home and was like, what are you doing? I was like, I just got one more meeting today. And she was like, but a lot of places are closed because it's Good Friday. And I was like, I, it's a meeting. And she was like, also, um, you're the CEO. Like, you can decide not to have this meeting. So that's probably a good sign your work. Third is um, we met with our financial planner. And he was like, hey, things are in good shape. You're doing fine. And I immediately told him, I was like, ah, I don't know who you're talking about right now. I'm going to pretend it's not me so I can keep hustling and pretend like we're about to lose the farm and I can stay really motivated. That's probably a sign I'm a workaholic. And um, the fourth one is I set a reading goal on spring break. We went to Cabo with my uh, kids and another couple, another family. And I set a reading goal. That's probably, probably a sign. So will I write about 
being a workaholic someday? Like maybe, maybe not, but I'll have that idea that I can work on. Idea number 685 was um, when you add something to the conversation. So I just realized one day that a lot of times I add things to conversations that aren't there or I add to like stuff to situations that's not there. I had fear, I had stress, I had frustration. And it's almost like salting a meal. Like I just had this mental picture of like me having like this fanny pack where I keep salt containers. I know it's a pretty cool mental picture. Um, and somebody, some situation happens and I pour a lot of salt on it. And then I'm like, it's weird that it was salty. Like if every meal you had, if you put like a pound, like 10 ounces of salt on it. And then we're like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't like that meal. It felt, it was kind of salty. Like, but you added that. So a lot of times I add extra stress to situations or extra intensity or extra frustration or extra, like what's their angle or they're taking advantage of me like over stuff that no one is doing that. Like I'm salting it. And so I just thought the next time I'm in a situation like that, I'm just going to try to be like, that's enough salt. We don't need to add any more stress to this. We don't need to add any more tension to this. So that's an idea. Again, will I write about that? I don't know. But I thought that was an interesting metaphor. And it just made me laugh when somebody would, you know, suggest something to me and I would get angry or frustrated about it or stressed out about it. I go, wait a second. I think I added a bunch of things to this situation that aren't there. And I just remember me like salt, 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 salt. It's a good metaphor for me. Will I use it? I don't know. Here's another one. Let's see. Which one is this? Okay. Idea 709 says three ways to make money, work more and increase your money. So if you, you know, if you're a public speaker, you, instead of doing 50 events a year, you do a hundred. That's one way to make more money. That's true. Like, you know, you increase the amount of work. Number two, work less for the same money. So you increase your hourly rate. So if you're making a certain amount of money and you figure out how to do it faster, more efficiently in less steps, your hourly rate goes up. So you're making more. Third way, adjust your lifestyle. So a friend and I were talking and he lives in New York City and we have fairly similar financial situations. And, and he he was saying, but I, but I make a lot more money, but we're going to end up in the same place. And it's because my lifestyle in Nashville isn't, is pretty small. Like I live in it like very small. Um, I always love the joke that like, my favorite thing to wear is black t-shirts because it's true. And I found out that like, I'm fine. I like the t-shirts at Walmart. Like I like, they're called George. They're George t-shirts and they're for like $4.97. You can get like five for $25. Like, I love that. Like, let's go. Like I'll wear a George t-shirt. Like, so it's just, you can adjust your lifestyles another way to make more money. And it wasn't that he was being frivolous. It wasn't, I'm not saying that at all. He just lives in a different city. He lives in an expensive city. Like his lifestyle is more expensive just by the nature of where they live. And mine is, is not because I live in the suburbs outside of Nashville. Like it's not that it's a, a cheap lifestyle. It's just a different lifestyle. So it's interesting to watch both of us kind of process that, that he financially is on a much bigger scale, but because of our lifestyles, they kind of balance out. And I thought, okay, that's a third way to make more money that like, I don't feel like enough people talk about. Will I write about that? I don't know, but I got the idea written down. And the last one, the last example I'll give you, um, let's see. Um, like idea seven, um, 
732. Like maybe maybe 732 or eh, let's let's do uh let's do idea 7 um 30. This one came from a book called 4000 hours. No, it's 4000 weeks. It's a book called 4000 weeks. Great book, really enjoyed it. And the author said that the problem with email is the input of email is endless and the output is 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 small. Like is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the input, anybody can send you an email. You can get 10,000 emails from people, but your output, what you're able to put back out is limited because you're just one person. So it's it's imbalanced. Like you can't keep up with email because by the nature of it, 10,000 people can input into your world and your output will always be limited. You'll never be done with email. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to think about email. I've never thought about that. Maybe I'll include that in a book someday um, and give that person credit. Book was called uh, 4,000 Weeks and I really enjoyed it. So those are just ideas in my notebooks and now, now I have them. And so I'm a big, 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 big geek about collecting ideas. Um, I've said this before. I don't believe in writer uh, like writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. If you can't write a good book, if you can't, can't write a good speech, can't write, you know, a good paper, whatever, it's not because you're blocked, your, your bank is empty, you don't have enough ideas. So I'm really, really serious about ideas. Step three, I write in layers. Um, or I, I write a terrible first draft, which a bunch of people have talked about. But but here's the reality. Um, my, my first version of a book is not funny. My first version of a book isn't particularly positive. Um, my first version of a book like it doesn't have the right words. Um, my first version of a book is is in passive voice because I 100% didn't get that lesson in like the seventh grade. Like I, maybe I was sick. I might have had chicken pox or something. Um, but whenever they talked, they taught passive voice. I just didn't understand it. And so like a lot of my first versions are like, oh, um, my first versions don't make a lot of sense. Like the first things I write don't make a lot of sense. Like my first like drafts are only a connection of ideas, like loosely strung together with the thinnest of thread, like just gossamer. And that used to drive me crazy. I'd look up from hours of writing and, and I'd pace around the office in like frustration. And then I decided to admit something. I write in layers. I do. The first layer is just a sketch. All I've done is taking a bunch of the ideas that I've collected that feel kind of related. And I've put them on the same page. Like I've invited them to the same party and been like, Hey, let's see if you guys get along. Like, let's see what happens here. The transitions are flimsy. The logic is fuzzy. The cohesiveness is non-existent, but that's okay. Because the first layer always is, I don't even, I don't even care about the words in the first draft. Like I'll type need better word in all caps. I'll just type need better words. Like, cause my head doesn't have the right word yet. And then I'll just keep going. And, and this isn't the good words layer. This is the concept layer. And sometimes I'll sketch it out. Like I'll draw the book. I found over the years, if I can't draw the idea out, it's not a good idea. Like if I can't explain it visually pretty in a, in a pretty quick, pretty simple manner, it, it's going to be too confusing. Like for me, for the audience, for the reader, like if I can't sketch it, so sometimes I'll sketch it first. It's, that's the concept layer. And then once I've spent enough time away from that first layer to be somewhat objective, I'll come back and I'll do the second layer. Now I care a little more about the words. I care about the transitions. I care about the flow. I'll read through it and go, 
okay, this sentence isn't working or this, there's no, there's a drop off right here. I'm a big believer that when it comes to books, there's islands and there's bridges and an island is a main idea. And the bridge is what gets you to the next idea. And sometimes books leave you on the first island, especially like nonfiction where like they'll tell you an idea and you're like, okay, I, I get that. That's cool. I like that. And then there's no bridge and you, you stay stuck. So like when I'm reading through this layer, I'm looking for islands and bridges going, are things connected? Do I have what I need in this layer? Is it, is it all, is it in the right place? So I think about that and, and it gets better. Like it's getting better now but it's still not very positive despite appearing very positive and like tall online. People say that all the time. It's like, you're so tall. I am pretty negative. Like, I don't know if you've picked up on that, um, but I can be a smidge uh, sarcastic. I got some sarcasm going on. And with that sarcasm often comes negativity. My initial drafts are so mopey. They're like dark little storm clouds, best suited for the liner notes of a Cure album. Like, I think The Cure would read some of my first drafts and be like, ooh, that is depressing. That is moody. Like, I think Adam Duritz and Counting Crows would like be like, that is sadder than Round Here, the live version that's 13 minutes long, where he says, Ar- archipelago? How do you say that word? That's a tough word. You know what I mean? Like a tiny island. I can say it perfectly when I'm not recording a podcast, but... I'm recording a podcast, so I'm just going to say Baby Island. You know the word I'm talking about. Starts with an A. So at that stage of the writing, I work in more positivity. Like I try to make it more positive. It has to be honest. Like it has to be genuine. I don't like like toxic positivity. I'm not like a rah-rah motivational guy. Like sometimes my favorite dumb motivational statement is sometimes you have to jump um, and grow wings on the way down. Like that is not at all how gravity works. Like that is just the worst advice. Sometimes you have to jump and grow wings on the way. No, those people hit the ground. Like they do. So I don't write syrup. Um, like if I, if I def leopard the whole thing and just pour sugar over it, it won't hit the mark. So I've got to kind of dial in the positivity. And once I get the positivity on point, then I amplify the humor. In the movie industry, they often hire comedians to punch up a script with more jokes. That's what I'm doing with this layer. I'm going back through the entire piece and I'm making sure that there are some genuine laugh out loud moments. I look for the ridiculous and then I turn it up a few notches. The next layer that I add on is to make sure it's helpful. I like ideas that move me to action. I don't just write to write. Like I write action books. I want to inspire you to do something. So I read what I've written with a filter of, okay, what's in it for me? Like what's in it for me? I want you to learn something practical that you can use today. Now, when I'm done with those layers, I finally make sure that I've got the right words in place. Um, I, you know, I'm going through and I'm looking for the humor. I'm deciding that Def Leppard is a funny band name to turn into a verb, for instance. But during this final layer, I meticulously go through every sentence to decide if I have my favorite words. That's when I get really, really specific. So I don't think about it like drafts. I don't write drafts. I write layers. And that word distinction matters to me. While researching for my latest book on overthinking, I discovered that the names we give our work have weight. A draft is too serious for me. A draft is a complete work. That word awakens my perfectionism and it makes it hard to move beyond the first rendition of my work. The word layers gives me more freedom. It's just a layer. Other layers will come. Other layers will do their job. 
An architect would never stand on a muddy job construction site and say, why do we only have the foundation? What a failure of a first draft. Instead, she'd recognize that big projects come from layers. The foundation was just the start. There's an electrical layer and a plumbing layer and a framing layer. If you ever have a hard time finishing a first draft, try a layer instead. Minor number one, concept, rough concept. Number two, positivity. Number three, humor. Number four, actions. And number five, words. Yours will be different, but every writer has them. Write down a few of yours today. Just think for a second. Go, okay, what are my layers? Like as I think about the way I write, what are my layers? Step four to what I do to write New York Times bestselling books is I edit, edit, edit. One of the biggest mistakes writers make is combining the writing and the editing process. When you do this, you never fully write and you never fully edit. Those two actions are not peanut butter and jelly. They're more like peanut butter and cod, like which is such a gross combo. I tried to think of the grossest combo I could think of and cod is a funny word. Editing is slow and mathematical and plotting and deliberate and like, oh, it's analytical. Writing is fast and free and unencumbered. How do I separate them? Simple. I leave clues behind. When I'm writing, I am not researching or editing. I'm just writing. So in the middle of a paragraph, like if I realize that I need a quote, I don't stop my writing to go find it. If I do, like if I go try to find the quote, I lose the momentum of the paragraph and I never come back to the page. Instead, I just write quote in all caps and then I move on. That clue tells me that later when I'm editing, I need to go back in and dig up a good quote. If I visit the internet while I'm writing, it's it's game over. Like it's over, dude. Will I write a few sentences while I'm editing later? Of course. Like I'll mix in some writing while I'm editing. That's only natural. But to the best of my abilities, I keep them as separate processes. And I suggest you do the same. Now, writers often tell me that with self-publishing, they say all the gatekeepers are gone. All the gatekeepers are gone. And I agree. This is a magical time for writers. But unfortunately, they usually lump editors into the gatekeeper category. Like it's sexier to think about your marketing. It's sexier to think about your book launch. It's sexier to think about your cover design. But if you skimp on editing, your book is doomed. You can't edit your own book. Like I I need to say that again and again and again. You are not the editor of your own book. But you can't also have a friend read it and consider it edited. Like it's helpful. I had 10 people read my first book, 10 friends and say, which parts do you think are funny? Which parts are getting sucked? Like, If you self-publish a book, you need to pay a professional editor to make your book awesome. And I don't have some editing service I'm about to say, use this one. Like it's, this is, I'm not saying this because I'm going to make money off this idea. I just truly believe in this edit, this idea. Like one time I gave my editor 60,000 words for a new book and she gave me back 37,000 words. She cut 23,000 words. That's what you want in an editor. You want someone who will cut and challenge and force you to grow. Editing is everything and will make the lifetime of your book great. Don't skip that stage just because you can self-publish quickly. You'll regret it. Like pay for an editor. Like find an editor that's at at your range, that's at your level, that will actually really help your book. Like you don't have to spend a ton of money on the person, but have a professional editor. Step five, sell the book sell the book. Like I know that feels weird to say these are writing tips, but sell the book is an important writing tip. If the size of the Lego department at your local bookstore doesn't scare you, you're not, you're not paying attention. 
Visit it today and marvel at how large the toy, puzzle, and memorabilia section has grown in the last few years. Better yet, walk down the aisle on an airplane in flight and count the number of devices versus books. Like just count people watching movies on their phone or, a, you know, a laptop or a Kindle or an iPad, like count that versus books. Now, sure, a handful of people will be reading Kindles, but the majority will be watching videos or playing games. Last but not least, watch what companies advertise these days. There's an AT&T commercial where a guy walks down the street looking at his phone. Each new app like changes the scene around him, going from Game of Thrones to Seinfeld to Sesame Street, all over the place. He goes through a dozen apps, and none of them are about reading a book. Why is this important? Because AT&T spent millions of dollars to figure out what people cared about, and books didn't crack their top 15. The irony is that right now, it's easier than ever to sell a book. You have more venues, more sites, and more opportunities. You can get to market faster with less restrictions, but it's getting harder to sell your book too. Self-publishing has flooded the market. You are now competing with millions and millions of people. The bottom line is you have to wear another hat as a writer these days, and that hat says entrepreneur on it. Though it makes us queasy sometimes, like if you're a writer, to think that way and we feel like, well, oh, I don't want to be a salesperson. I don't want to bother people. Like The reality is simple. If you want to write more books, you have to sell more books. That's, that's a really simple principle of writing. If you want to write more books, you have to sell more books. I tell people all the time, like friends who are like embarrassed to sell their book, um, I'll say, well, Jen, next time, next time, just write a diary. Like, just write a diary, put it on your nightstand. Like, just do that. Like, but if you want the book to be on a shelf, if you want it to impact a lot of people, if you want it to change a lot of lives, you have to sell it. That's your job. The publisher will help with that if you end up going to the publisher, but it's still your job. I still consider that a huge part of my job to talk about soundtracks, to encourage you to check out soundtracks, to say, hey, 99.5% of people said that they overthink. You're probably in that category. You can turn overthinking from a super problem into a superpower, and it's actually really fun, and it's actually really simple to do. You're going to love my book, Soundtracks. Like It's my job to do that. And that book came out a year ago. Like I'm going to be talking about it a year from now too. Like that's my job. So part of being a writer is selling what you do. So let's review those five steps because recaps are fun. Number one, find a question that you're willing to spend years answering. Number two, collect ideas, 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 ideas. Number three, write in layers. Think about it that way. Write in layers. Like figure out what are the layers that I'm adding to this. Number four, edit, edit, edit. Number five, sell the book sell the book. So next week, the final in our four-part series of summer school, we're going to talk about the four mistakes that public speakers make. These are really, really simple mistakes, and you can avoid them if you listen to this episode. It's going to be a super fun one. So thank you for listening to today's episode. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always, and thank you for reviewing the podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging, and I'm curious if this, this format has been helpful. Let me know. Let me know if you go, you know what? You should do summer school next year, or maybe there's maybe there's a different topic you want. You go, hey, okay, writing, health, you know, being an entrepreneur, public speaking, those are good topics. But here's a different topic I'd like. If there is, just let me know. I'd love to know that. Please make sure you follow or subscribe or whatever it is the kids are saying these days, and please write a review. I'll see you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Last but not least, if you want some help with any goal you're working on, check out my finished course at 
www.finishcourse.com. That's finishcourse.com. I'll see you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.